Good morning. John 10, 1 through 18. Truly, truly I say to you, anyone who, do, who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that person is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as a father knows me, and I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father, the word of the Lord. One of the most painful things that can happen to anyone is to be ignored. You know, it, it hurts when other people um, criticize you or put you down or insult you or yell at you or treat you with contempt. But at least they're still acknowledging your existence. Even more painful than that, however, is to be ignored. I remember once when I was living in New York City, I went down to the subway one night to catch a train home. And it was late at night and there was nobody else in the station. I had a question about one of the trains. So I walked up to the ticket booth to ask the attendant. And when I walked up, um, he absolutely refused to look at me. Um, it was kind of weird. Um, in fact... It felt very intentional because, like I say, there was nobody else in the station. It was just him and me. And so I asked my question, and he gave me a very short, gruff answer, but I didn't understand what he was saying. So I asked again, and again, he gave me the same very curt answer. And the whole time, he absolutely refused to look at me. And, you know, New York is a big, busy city. I certainly do not remember every single little interaction I had with people the whole time I was living there, but I remember that. Why? 
because of the way it made me feel, like I was ignored, like I was nothing, like I was less than nothing. And I don't know, you know, what kinds of things may have happened in that man's life to prompt him to treat me that way, and I bear him no ill will, and I'm certainly, I haven't been losing sleep over it. But, but if being ignored by a total stranger can sting just enough that you remember it years later, how much more painful is it to be ignored by somebody who really matters to you? One of the most painful things that can happen is to be ignored, and that's because every human being needs two things. First, every person wants to be known, and every person wants to be loved. And when those two things are present in your life, you have what we could call a stable identity. An identity means two things, really. It means, first, that you have a sense of self. That means that there are many different roles that we all play throughout our lives. Having a sense of self means that, that there's a core self, a core you, that's, that's the same. It's identical throughout all those different roles that you play. In fact, the word identity comes from the Latin word, which means the same. It means there's a core you that's the same in all the different roles you play. But secondly, having an identity means that you have a sense of significance, a sense of worth and value. And when both of those things are present in your life, when you have both a sense of self and a sense of significance, in other words, when you are both known and loved, then you have what we would call a stable identity. And there are very few things in our culture right now that are more contested, more controversial, and more emotionally fraught than this subject of identity. So here's the question, where do you get it? We're in a series right now in which we're looking at a number of statements uh, that Jesus made in the Gospel of John. They're called the I Am Statements. Jesus said things like, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world. He points to basic needs and core longings, and he says, I am the one who fulfills that need or fulfills that longing. So when Jesus says in this passage, I am the good shepherd, that actually fulfills many needs in our lives, like things for uh, guidance or protection or security. But one of the big needs it fulfills is for identity. We're going to see that Jesus does three things in this passage to give us an identity. Those three things are he knows us, he names us, and he leads us. And we're going to look at each one of those in turn. He knows us, he names us, and he leads us. Okay, first, Jesus knows us. Now, as I just mentioned, having an identity means, first of all, having a coherent sense of self, that there's a real you that exists. So in verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I know my own. So Jesus says, he knows us. Now, this may seem like a little bit of a no-brainer, but when Jesus says he knows us, that's only possible if there's a real you to be known. In other words, that there's a real you, a real self, and it's distinct from God, and it's also distinct from other people because a little later Jesus says that, um, that he names us, and we'll get back to that. But Jesus is saying, I know you, that he knows you as a distinct, unique, um, identifiable, um, real, and enduring self. So here's the question, how does Jesus know us or what does Jesus know about us? This is where things actually get a little bit difficult for us because Jesus says that he's the shepherd and we're the sheep. Jesus says that, that we are sheep and as we saw last week, 
Um, a shepherd and his sheep is one of the Bible's most common ways of talking about God and his people. So Jesus is saying that, that human beings are like sheep. And actually, when we understand that, we have a problem. Um, because when Jesus calls us sheep, I don't know if you know this, but it's really not a compliment. In fact, I, I don't know how to say this except to just say it. Sheep are some of the most stupid animals that exist. They're, they're always wandering away from the shepherd and the flock. They're always getting in danger. Um, sheep are the most lacking in self-sufficiency. They are the most helpless. A lot of times sheep don't even know like, what food is good for them. And yet this is one of the most common images in the Bible for human beings. In fact, it's one of the most common images for sin. So Psalm 119 says, um, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Or Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. Or when Jesus came and began his public ministry, he said in many places, I have come to seek out the lost sheep of the people of Israel. Over and over again, Jesus keeps talking about people and saying he's come to seek the lost. And in the Bible, that word lost is a word that literally means perishing. Jesus is saying that, that one of the primary defining characteristics of each and every one of us is that we are all utterly, totally, spiritually helpless. That we're all spiritually lost. In fact, that each one of us is perishing, that we need someone or something to come and seek us out and to save us because we're all headed towards perishing. We're all headed towards destruction. This is an image of sin. And I realize as soon as I say that, that in our culture, this is one of the most offensive things I could possibly say. Especially when you realize what this particular image is telling us about sin. Because the Bible has many different images it uses to talk about sin. You know, sin is so multifaceted, so complex, that no one single image can possibly define it in its entirety. So the Bible uses different images. And when it talks about human beings as being lost sheep, it's saying that every human being has a radical tendency to run away from God. That, that we want to live life on our own terms. We want to define ourselves. We don't want any external authority telling us who we are or how to live. And if you think about it, you realize that describes to a T our culture's definition of what it means to be a healthy, flourishing, liberated human being. It, our culture says, would look at this definition of sin as being lost cheap and say, that's not sin, that's being an authentic human being. What do you mean sin? Our culture says that you can't let anyone define you. You can't let anyone tell you how to live. You have to determine who you are. You have to determine how you want to live. And if God does exist, then his job is to help us accomplish our vision for our lives and help us to pursue our own individual happiness, however it is we want to define that. Or we could put it like this. Um, I mentioned last week a book by a writer named Patrick Deneen. Patrick Deneen is a professor of political science at Notre Dame. And he wrote a book last year called Why Liberalism Failed. And when he talks about liberalism, he's talking about classical liberalism, which is a political philosophy devoted to this idea of liberty. So that's something that includes both progressives and conservatives. Don't be confused by the title. But in his book, Patrick Deneen points out that in the ancient world, liberty meant that, that you get control over yourself 
so that you are no longer a slave to your own selfish desires. In contrast to that, he points out that our modern Western culture is the exact opposite of that. For us, liberty means being free of any external restraint that would keep us from fulfilling our internal desires. Or we could put it like this. The ancient concept of liberty meant um, that liberty means you look inside of yourself and you learn to say no. But, but the modern concept of liberty means that we look inside of ourselves. We, we look at our wants. We look at our desires. We look at what our heart is telling us. We look at all of that and we say, yes. That's what our modern culture says. Lost sheep. See, we don't want a God that will restrain us. We want a God that will let us run free. And Jesus says that if we live like that, we're actually on the road to destruction because we don't know ourselves. The tragedy is we don't even know ourselves well enough to know that, that, that the way we're living is leading us headlong into destruction. But Jesus does know us far better than we know ourselves. And that leads us to our next point. We've just seen that Jesus knows us. But next, we see Jesus names us. In verse 3, it says, or Jesus says, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. Now, understand, the word identity never appears in the Bible. That, that word is actually a pretty new word, a pretty modern word in um, history. But the concept of identity appears throughout the Bible. It just shows up in different ways. And one of the main ways this concept of identity shows up in the Bible is through having a name. In the Bible, to have a name is to have a sense of self and a sense of significance. In the Bible, to have a name is to have an identity. But here's the question. Where do you get that name? In ancient traditional cultures, and by the way, in most non-Western cultures today, the way you get a name is from your community. You get your name from your family or your tribe or your clan. So, so in traditional cultures... Your role in life is assigned to you by the community. And, and the way you um, get a name is, is you, um, you say no to your internal desires for the sake of the larger community. And if you do that well, then the community bestows a name on you. The hero in those cultures is the person who says no to their individual desires for the sake of the larger community. Now, in Western culture, as we just noticed, it's the exact opposite of that. In our culture, we say, um, you should never let anyone else name you. You should never let other people define you. You should flee from any externally imposed identity. Uh, externally imposed identities are oppressive. We should flee from those things. Instead, we should name ourselves. We, we should determine who we are. We, as we say, you should never, it doesn't matter what other people say about you. The only thing that matters is that we're the ones who bestow worth and value and dignity upon ourselves. So in our culture, that's the way we get an identity. So as opposed to traditional cultures, the hero in our culture is the person who says yes to their individual desires and to hell with anybody who tries to stop you from being true to yourself. Okay, And you know what? There are big problems with both of those ways of trying to get an identity. So in traditional cultures, many people have pointed out, that can be very oppressive. If you're an outsider, if you're a minority, if you don't fit in, then the community withholds the name from you. It withholds the worth and the dignity that you need. And so in many ways, our modern approach is somewhat of an improvement on the traditional approach, because the modern approach would say you can't let other people define you. 
And that's good. That's a good thing. In fact, it's a Christian thing because it's based on this Christian idea that every human being is a unique individual with worth and dignity, okay? But the modern approach also has some problems. And one of them is this. Instead of leading to an oppressive society, um, modern uh, identity formation can lead to a fragmented society. We all have our own um, hyper-individual identity, which means we're constantly at war with other people. In fact, we're seeing that played out in our own culture big time right now. Why is that? It's because uh, there's an even bigger problem with modern identity formation. Modern identity says, don't let other people name you. You have to name yourself. Don't let other people define you. You can't do that. You have to define yourself. You have to name yourself. You have to bestow worth and dignity and value on yourself. Now, that sounds great, but it's impossible. The name, the identity, the value that we seek always has to come from outside of ourselves. We can't do that for ourselves. We can't name ourselves. And there are different ways that we try to go about doing that in our society. Now, it's at this point, we have to do a little bit of soul surgery here uh, because it's important to recognize that for many of you, um, you've been deeply hurt by the people in your life um, who have uh, withholded the validation and the dignity that you need. Many of you have grown up, whether it's as children or as adolescents or even as adults, you've had people who have deeply hurt you or rejected you or ignored you or betrayed you or abandoned you. And as a result, you've grown up with this like aching chasm of self-doubt and self-criticism and, and self-loathing. And that's real. We have to name that. It's very important. Um, and so if no one else is giving you the validation that you seek, it's very natural for us to try to give that to ourselves. And one of the ways we do that is by protest. And by protest, I mean we loudly assert our identity to the world around us. We demand that the world around us recognize and honor our own self-defined identities. So for instance, um, have you ever um, noticed something about all of the songs in our culture that are like the anthems for modern identity and modern individualism. For instance, songs like, you know, in Frozen where Queen Elsa sings, let it go. Or um, in The Greatest Showman where the circus performers sing that song, this is me. What, what kind of songs are those? You know, these, these are not meek, mousy, obsequious little songs. They're protest songs, aren't they? Yes, on the one hand, they are a heartbreaking lament for the ways that the world has hurt us. That's important. But at their essence, these songs are protest songs. They are a demand for a recognition that has to come from outside of ourselves. It, because if it really was true, what our culture says, that you can't let anybody else, um, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, it only matters what you think about yourself. If that really were true, then, then why would we always be having to protest so loudly that all of the world around us would recognize and affirm our own self-defined identities? It's because you can't name yourself. It always has to come from outside of you. And the tragedy about this, this idea of protest is that if you've ever tried to do that, you know it just makes the emptiness worse. It leads you deeper into the, into the self-wounds, deeper into yourself, not out of yourself, deeper into the woundedness. It's because protest can never give us the name that we need. 
And neither, by the way, can the other major way, I think, that we go about trying to find a name for ourselves in modern culture, and that's by performing for it. We try to get a name for ourselves by achievement or success. So I read um, an essay a couple of months ago in the New York Times by a British writer named Ruth Whitman, and uh, she's talking about the gig economy and all of the self-marketing, self-branding, and self-promotion that goes along with that. But the really fascinating thing about this essay was she is brutally honest about the reality that, that in this whole gig economy, it's not really about the money. Listen to how she puts it. She writes, Almost everyone I know has some kind of hustle, whether job, hobby, or side project. Share my blog post. Buy my book. Click on my link. Follow me on Instagram. Visit my Etsy shop. Donate to my Kickstarter. Crowdfund my heart surgery. It's as though we are all working in Walmart on an endless Black Friday of the soul. The sad truth is that many of us would probably make more money stacking shelves or working at the drive-thru than selling our thing. The real prize is deeper, more existential. What this is really about, for many of us, is a roaring black hole of psychological need. We shackle our self-worth to the success of these projects. We grub and scrabble and claw at one another, chasing these tiny pellets of self-esteem. What is Ruth Whitman saying we're working so hard for? Self-esteem, self-worth. What is that? It's a name. Friends, we cannot give ourselves the name we need. It always has to come from outside of us. Protest won't work. Performing for it won't work. What will work? Where do you get a name that endures? There's only one place, and this is where the gospel is so unique and so transformative. Because traditional society says, the community names you. Modern society says, you name you. But the gospel says, Jesus names you. Friends, there is no other philosophy, no other religion, no other approach to life that gives you an identity like this. And the really interesting thing about this is that even though our modern society would say, look, externally imposed identities are bad, they're a a no-no, you should run away from that. Jesus does the ultimate no-no in our culture, externally imposed identity. But this is not an identity that's imposed, it's an identity that's bestowed. And there's a big difference between those two things because you have a choice about whether or not you are going to receive this identity from Jesus. And the really remarkable thing about this identity, this self and the significance that Jesus gives us is he shows his love for us. Jesus does not just tell you that he loves you. He just doesn't assert it and says, just believe that I love you. No, he shows us that he loves us. And the way he does that is by dying for us, by dying for us. So in verse 11 and also again in verse 15, he repeats it. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep for you, for sinners, for people that I know intimately to the depths of your being. I lay my, down, my life down for you. And that word for is a word that means sacrifice. In other words, Jesus' death on the cross is not just an example to us. You know, as if somebody were to jump in front of a train saying, see how much I love you. We'd say somebody who did that was crazy, That does nothing to accomplish love for us. Jesus' death is not just an example to us. He's a substitute for us because the cross shows us two things about ourselves. We need to know that we are known and we need to know that we are loved. The cross shows us 
it helps you to really know yourself because the cross shows you the extent of your lostness. That we're all running away from God, all seeking to pursue our own name, our own glory, our own happiness apart from God. But when you look at Jesus hanging on the cross, you see the cross shows you the extent of your lostness because it shows you the lengths that it was necessary for God to go through in order to save you. It shows you the, the extent of your lostness, that you were so lost that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save you. But the cross also shows you that you were so loved that Jesus would go to any lengths to save you. Friends, that is an identity that endures. Or you could think about it like this. I was watching um, the television show Blacklist a couple of years ago. Um, the main character in that show is a, a man named Raymond Reddington. And in one of the episodes, he goes out to a beach where many years earlier he had lost the love of his life. And he's standing out there on the shore, looking out into the ocean, thinking about his lost love. And then he turns around to walk back um, from the shore. And as he's walking up, he sees that an old man has found something buried in the sand. And as he comes near, he sees that it's this crusty old locket. It's all beat up and sandy and rusty and horrible condition. But he realizes that this locket, it belonged to her, his long-lost love. And as he walks up to the old man, he says, may I see that? And the old man pulls back and says, but I found it. And so instinctively, Raymond plunges his hand into his pocket and he brings up a wad of cash, a wad of $100 bills. There's like thousands of dollars in his hand and he says, I'll buy it from you. And the old man looks at this crusty old locket in his hand and he looks at the wad of cash in Raymond's hand and he hands Raymond the locket and takes the cash and he says, it's not worth anything near that. And Raymond says, it is to me. Friends, if you knew, and I mean really knew, how much God loved you and the, and the lengths to which God was willing to go, the sacrifice God was willing to make in order to make you his own, if you really knew that, that would give you a sense of self and a sense of significance that nothing could ever take away from you because it wouldn't be based on anything you do. It would be based on something that's done for you. So that no matter how you feel about yourself, no matter how worthless or beat up or crusty you may feel about yourself, no matter what the world says about you, no matter what you say about you, the final word on you is the blood of Jesus. That is an identity that can endure forever. And it leads to our last point. We've seen that Jesus knows us. We've seen that Jesus names us. But lastly, Jesus leads us. What, what does an identity like this mean in your lives if you've received this identity from Jesus? In, um, in verse 4, Jesus says, When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. In other words, to receive this identity from Jesus means that as your shepherd, Jesus leads you and you follow him. So what does it mean to follow Jesus in this new identity? Let me offer you just a few thoughts. Jesus leads us in three things, okay? First, he leads us into true liberty. As he said, um, Jesus leads us. We know his voice and the sheep follow him. One of the really interesting things I found out as I was studying this week is that shepherds throughout the world do not all shepherd their flocks in the same way. So Western shepherds, um, they drive their sheep, their flock from behind, and the way they do that is with dogs. 
Jewish shepherds, ancient Near Eastern shepherds in Jesus' day lead their flocks, they shepherd their flocks by going out in front of the, of the flock and leading them on with their voice. Because it's funny, as, you know, as amazingly stupid as sheep are, one thing sheep do really, really well is they recognize the voice of their shepherd. And here's what this means for you. Friends, I want to encourage you that the more you receive this identity from Jesus, the more you learn to recognize his voice, hear his voice, follow him, learn to follow him, the more that happens in your life, the less you will be driven by the dogs of fear and shame and anxiety and self-doubt, self-criticism, self-loathing, perfectionism, and all the other dogs that are constantly barking at your heels. The more you learn to live into the identity that Jesus gives you, the more you will actually be free from all the other things that drive you. So Jesus leads us into true liberty. But secondly, Jesus, Jesus leads us into community. One of the main ways you learn to recognize his voice and follow him is in community. So if you look at verse 4, once again, Jesus says, when he has brought out all of his own, all of his own. In other words, there's an emphasis here on the flock as a flock. In other words, you are not just a lone sheep out there following Jesus. You're part of a community. You're part of a flock. One of the simplest and yet one of the most powerful ways that you can grow in your ability to follow Jesus, to be known by him, and to know him is by being part of a community of Christians. And one of the simplest and most powerful ways that happens is that in addition to coming to worship on a Sunday, that you would be part of a smaller group of Christians at least once a week where, where you help each other, you encourage each other in the way of Jesus. That is one of the most powerful things that you can do to learn how to follow Jesus and to grow in him. Because one of the beautiful things that Jesus does in this passage is Jesus turns sheep into shepherds. In other words, we're all called to care for one another. You know, this is a growing church, and we actually passed the point quite a while ago where it would be possible for me to shepherd each and every single person in this church. But even if it was possible for me to do that, it would be wrong of me to do that because it would be robbing you of God's call in your lives to care for one another. That is one of the most significant things we do in this church. You know, the goal of church, among the many goals, but one of the goals, it, it, it's not so that everyone would know everyone else. In most churches, including this one, it's impossible for everyone to know everyone else, but it is possible for everyone to be known. And there's a big difference between those two things. One of the best and most powerful and simplest ways for you to be known is to be part of a group of Christians that meets during the week to gather together to encourage one another and help one another, to care for one another and shepherd one another. So first, Jesus leads us into true liberty. Second, Jesus leads us into community. But lastly, Jesus leads us into mission. In, um, in verse 16, Jesus goes on to say, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now, it's important to understand that right here, Jesus is talking about Gentiles. They're the ones that don't belong to, to the flock that he's talking to. It, Gentiles are non-Jewish people. And in that world, in that culture, Jews and Gentiles hated each other. There was a lot of hostility between those two groups. And one of the main issues, main struggles 
and challenges for the early church was this issue of racial reconciliation. How do you get people who hate each other to come together and be a part of one community in peace? There's only one way. You have to receive an identity and a name from Jesus. If if your identity is based on you or, or something you do, some quality that is about you, whether it's your race or your gender or your politics or your social status or your moral performance, you know, being on the right side of history, if, if your identity is based on any quality about you, then you will always be tempted to despise other people who do not share that same quality. And look, I know, I think it's important to say that in our world, we see Many, many people who would profess faith in Jesus and yet are some of the most hateful, divisive people in the world. Why is that? It's because it's possible to have faith in Jesus, to profess faith in Christ, and yet your identity is rooted in something else. You're getting your name from some other quality. But if the thing that defines you, if the thing that really defines you is the God of the universe dying on a cross for you, if that's where you get your name and your identity, then it will be impossible to despise or reject or or condemn any other person in the world. So that instead of condemning others, um, what happens is the more you become known by Jesus, the more you are welcomed and invited into his mission to make him known to others so that instead of, how is it we say today, othering others? Instead of othering others, you welcome others. You love others. You embrace others, the other. Because if the thing that defines you, if you knew in your heart just how lost you are, just how much you've made yourself an other to God, but that in his love, God has refused to treat you as another. In other words, on the cross, Jesus Christ became the ultimate other. He was unknown of God. He was rejected, despised, cast aside. He became unknown to God. He was treated as nothing on the cross so that others like you and me could be welcomed in so that we could receive the love and the honor and the dignity that have belonged to Jesus Christ from all eternity. Friends, on the cross, Jesus Christ lost his name and laid down his life so that he could give you a name and a life that endures forever and so that he could call you into his mission to make that name and that life known to others. Have you received this name? Are you following this shepherd? There's the liberty. There's the community. There's the purpose that you're looking for. Let's pray.